This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Anne Ulizio, Director of Special Projects for Arch Street Press, and I will be your host today. Today, our guest is Esra Al-Shafi, the 27-year-old founder and director of the Mideast Youth Network, a collective of websites, blogs, forums, and resources that give a voice to pro- progressive social change movements in the Middle East and North Africa. Esra's work primarily focuses on ethnic and religious minority rights throughout the Middle East and North Africa, and MideastYouth.com and the other network websites were created to harness the power of web applications and platforms to facilitate struggles for social change in the region. Hailing from Bahrain, Esra created Mideast Youth in 2006 and has since expanded her work to direct five additional websites that highlight the human rights struggles of specific populations in the Middle East and North Africa. These other websites include MideastTunes.org, crowdvoice.org, ahwa.org, kurdishrights.org, and migrantrights.org. Each site is designed to be a tool in the hands of those seeking social change, providing a way for them to bridge the gap between their voice and gaining the world's attention. Esra's innovative use of digital media to expose oppressed or overlooked social campaigns has caught the attention of a number of visible institutions across the world. In 2009, Esra was chosen as a TED Fellow, and two years later, she was recognized as a TED Senior Fellow. She is also an Echoing Green Fellow, and in 2011, she was named one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. Also in 2008, Ezra was given the Berkman Award for Internet Innovation from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School for the outstanding contributions to the internet and its impact on society. So, Esra, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, I'd like to just um, ask you about your your experience growing up as a a young woman in Bahrain. Um, Tell us a little bit about, you know, where your interest came came from in championing championing the minority rights in the the region. Yeah. Um, I grew up in uh, Bahrain, and very early on, um, I started witnessing the abuse of migrant workers, um, both, you know, around me and at school and in just very public spaces. And it was really difficult for me to witness that and, and not really be able to do much about it. Uh, when you go to school, you know, you're sort of told not to talk about these things or it's generally not encouraged. Um, you, at home, it's not a topic that many want to participate in. Um, you just sort of lack the venues where you can discuss these sorts of issues. And um, many years later, I finally discovered the internet and sort of using it in school. Uh, we were sort of be you know learning how to use search engines for research and discovering sites like Yahoo and Google. And I just started typing things like migrant workers, Bahrain, and trying to discover what people here and around the world were, were writing about this issue. And it was very an eye-opening experience for me just to see that finally we have a medium where we can 
discuss these things versus uh, what we were what we grew, grew up with and we still have um, now which is state controlled media uh, whether it's radio stations newspapers independent media at the time that I was growing up was still not something that was um, easily obtained or something where you can easily find to share your opinion and uh, that's what compelled me to start Midi Youth when I was sort of lurking across um, the internet, I also found that there were many things online that were only echoing what we had offline, which was isolation, sometimes propaganda, either directly from the government or from um, just misinformed sources spreading um, all kinds of misinformation about domestic workers, uh, racism. You saw lots of um, sort of hateful things being written about these topics. And uh, I realized that even though the internet was the gateway to freedom of speech, it only becomes a champion for freedom of speech when more and more people use it to practice freedom of speech and embracing the social good side that we can, things that we can achieve by using um, that power that we had, even though it was not a given human right, not at the time and still not today, um, it was something more like a weapon that we could use um, to amplify the voices of underrepresented communities. And I immediately see, uh, saw potential in growing, expanding, uh, and, and putting together a network of like-minded individuals who wanted to completely change the discourse. Absolutely. And which, which minorities, minority populations in the region do the websites specifically focus on? Can you talk to us a little bit about those? Yeah. So um, when I was searching the web, I sort of was um, looking for what were being d discussed um, often and what were not being discussed. So I saw several um, ways in which we could raise um, more awareness about uh, minorities such as members of the Baha'i faith. So I set up a website uh, called Baha'iRights.org and the title of that website is actually the Muslim Network for Baha'i Rights. And the reason for that is that um, Baha'is are amongst the most persecuted uh, religions in the Middle East. And, um, you know, it, 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 it became apparent that it was a Muslim-majority countries that were very intolerant towards this religion. And I wanted to sort of raise awareness from a Muslim perspective. So we put together a group of Muslim authors and writers and advocates that not only embraced freedom of religion, but this specific faith because it was so um, overlooked in the international media because their, um, because their uh, numbers were so small. They're but that didn't make them any less important. So we looked at these communities that many people didn't really focus on at the time, and uh, we wanted to create something unique. It wasn't just a Baha'i rights network for everyone to join, but it, it came specifically from Muslim youth. And I think that itself was sort of forming a statement to our Baha'i brethren who lived here, and at the same time to the world, that there were many people in the Muslim world fighting for religious minorities. And... Um, the other um, overlooked uh, mi minority or, or um, e even nation uh, was the Kurdish people throughout the Middle East. And um, during the time that I was setting up Mideast Youth around 2006, um, 
online, there really wasn't much of a debate about Kurdish rights, uh, specifically in the Arab world. So initially, it became the Arab Network for Kurdish Rights, and I was seeking to introduce um, a lot of um, Arab bloggers to this struggle so that we can take it and make it a much bigger movement. Um, but eventually, it sort of grew into Iranian advocates and Turkish advocates, um, especially considering the fact that um, Kurdish persecution also takes place in Iran and Turkey. So um, I decided to, um, we renamed it eventually to the Alliance for Kurdish Rights. And, um, and of course, the other one, um, which really hits close to home, is the MigrantRights.org, which has become the primary resource online for information on migrant worker abuse uh, in the Gulf in particular, but also um, in the wider Middle East, um, Lebanon and Jordan in particular. Wow, that's fascinating. And talk to us a little bit about how the Internet sort of, uh, the Internet's role, I guess. You had mentioned that the state does control the media, in Bahrain at least. Is that is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, online and offline. Online um, and offline. So, yes. Yeah, online there's a lot of censorship. In fact, one of my websites, crowdvoice.org, is censored here. And um, there's just a, a lot of surveillance that unfortunately takes place. So... Um, when I was first starting out, there was still a lot of um, arrests taking place due to uh, political bloggers and whatnot, but this has really drastically increased over the years. So with more access to the Internet actually comes more and more uh, concerns and, and danger that, that could potentially follow. So we've had to really um, regroup our thoughts and see how we could approach these issues in a way that was safer and in a way that we could amplify voices of dissent um, without us having to just create the content and having our group of authors create content, but rather how we can build tools and software that could help amplify these voices in a way that could really um, bypass censorship. Interesting. And, and what are some of the, some of the, the safer ways that you just, that you just mentioned, um, this, these tools and software, where are they specifically? So, for example, um, in 2009, we decided um, that blogging was sort of becoming less and less influential. I mean, it's still incredibly influential, but less so in recent years. And more people are sort of looking at interactive media, whether it's videos, um, audio, and by audio here, I'm, I'm mostly mean, you know, socially conscious music, hence our other website, MediStunes, um, as well as just different ways for people to populate and organize and disseminate content. Because when I was starting out, our problem was that we didn't have the content to begin with. But now, as more and more people have access to the internet, more and more awareness on how to use it, um, the issue became how to organize this information, how to curate it and contextualize all the data that exists today around social movements, not just in the Middle East, but worldwide. And that's what made us start crowdvoice.org. And... Um, Crowdvoice is a tool that we created um, to address the specific problem of having so much data out there and having it be disorganized. And we felt that one of the main ways that people could increase uh, awareness and, and advocacy was to keep people informed and to keep people in the loop of what other people were writing and to contextualize issues that are very difficult to understand, such as the crisis in Syria, the issues that are happening in, U in the Ukraine, um, so it wasn't just about human rights abuses, but it was about current events. And um, we 
very, uh, we, the whole platform is created around anonymity. So for example, every single link that is being shared, every single uh, piece of information being collected is not attached to any specific user. So we're gathering this information and people are creating an archive of data and information, but um, you don't know who started the topic and you don't know who put that information in. We don't go around saying that we're 100% secure because we also don't believe in security on the internet. It's just not possible. Um, it's very possible to um, help improve how you um, cover your tracks online, but they, with the many services that you have today, one small leak could eventually um, put you in danger or could potentially lead to other sources of information that you contributed to. And, and so we... We are very careful about telling anyone, oh, this is completely secure. But behind the scenes, we try to be as secure as we, you know, as we can. Um, and anonymity is a big thing that we use. For example, we have another platform called Ahwa, which means uh, passions in Arabic. And it's an LGBT platform for Arab youth. Um, it's a discussion tool where people can go and anonymously share their, per their personal stories, their thoughts to help um, build a supportive network and uh, give people, you know, a chance to share their experiences and advice on, on, to people who really need the support. Because apart from LGBT advocacy, we felt that there is one thing that was missing in the region, which was the, the overwhelming amount of LGBTs um, in the region who really didn't feel comfortable yet speaking out that proudly about their identity. So even though they didn't want to be taking part in advocacy campaigns, they did want to share their thoughts. People had questions about their sexual orientation, how it relates to faith and family and society. And we w wanted to create a community that was very connected, that could help um, each other with this. And, and to do that as safely as possible, we also developed a game mechanics uh, system where, for example, you have to be uh, a contributing and active member of the community to gain people's trust. And if people think you're kind of skeptical, uh, you know, if there's something fishy about your character, um, you really don't get the points required to sort of advance to the next levels. And the more you advance, the more options you have. For example, the chat room, you have access to different levels of the site. Um, and then once again, every single thing on the website comes with a warning. A warning for you not to share your name, your personal data, your personal information, not to share emails. We have a group of moderators to sort of ensure that none of that is taking place on the site to the best of our abilities. But, um, you know, at, this, at the same time, we understand also how risky it is. But it doesn't mean just because it's dangerous that we couldn't do it. Um, Self-censorship is, is sometimes a, a more dangerous option. I mean, people have a lot of issues just staying quiet and not being out and not being... Um, supportive publicly about these issues. And then the second thing is that we have a lot of people who are maybe not LGBT allies who turn out to be LGBT allies afterwards once they've heard all the discussions that are taking place and the struggles that people are facing. So it became an educational resource for people who don't understand what LGBTs are. Um, so these are the kinds of communities and tools that we build. Um, and sort of the last example, because I did mention audio, uh, we built MIDI Tunes to also widen our outreach. It wasn't just for us to build a showcase for underground and independent musicians and support them. But for example, I became aware of the Kurdish issue through Kurdish hip hop. I didn't read about it in the newspaper. I didn't watch it on a documentary. I didn't read a Human Rights Watch PDF file about it. 
I listened to rap songs and I came across this and it was all about existence and freedom. And then I started learning about the struggle and it turned me into an advocate for the cause. And um, I realized then and there the power of music and what it could mean to social justice movements in the region. Um, and then just speaking to many bands, um, starting from here in Bahrain, um, I started asking them if, if a platform like this would be helpful in you know, allowing people to discover their messages. And they said, absolutely. So we started building it out. And then overwhelmingly, we got lots of responses and registrations from bands wanting to be discovered so that they can amplify their message through their music. And we started building Android and iOS apps in order to uh, attract young people to download this on their phones and listen to the music and be inspired by the politically oriented uh, music that many of these musicians have. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. Um, and in fact, the tagline of the website is music for social change. Um, and so we, we do things with different communities. We sort of see what tools don't exist to assist other nonprofits who are also in our position of not being able to organize and disseminate data. So we built CrowdVoice. We saw a community here that did not have any resources to um, build a supportive network and to focus on personal stories. Um, so we built Ahua for that, for the LGBT community. We saw, you know, Kurdish rights issues not being discussed, migrant rights issues not being well documented. Um, so we see what doesn't exist there, and then we build it. Um, that's basically the whole value of what we do. And we, we sort of study what's around us. And if something is being sufficiently covered, we sort of don't touch that. That's why you don't really see a lot of um, deliberately political campaigns that we run for freedom of speech and all of that. It's very focused and very specific and we do that for a very specific reason which is if you're not very specific with your aim your message really doesn't get heard uh, heard and that's why we had to also instead of just allocating different websites for different causes as opposed to just having everything in one platform um, we just wanted to distribute each of these and, and do them differently for example on migrant rights we focus on videos and infographics to help um, bridge the gap between activists and people who are not aware of this issue but want to be and making it easy for them to understand this so that we can turn them into advocates for the cause. With music, we try to look at young people who are not even part of the social discourse and using music as a way to bring them in. Um, and with the other causes, we want to show how interconnected uh, the Middle East is. Someone from Bahrain building a campaign um, with the assistance of Iranians and, and Turks and Egyptians and, and doing something for the, for the rights of Kurds, for example. And this all just sorts of strengthens our ties and brings them together because tomorrow, if I stand with them, obviously, when I am in need or when my country in need, you know, we often collaborate on these topics so that instead of me facing the backlash, it's a network of safety so that they would be um, able to sort of help us disseminate information in a more secure way without having to be specifically based here. So it's all about building a network. Wow, it's it's truly it's truly a combination of, of just innovation and, and creativity with, with, also, with also a lot of bravery. I mean, you're taking on what could potentially be a dangerous position for yourself as well as your teammates and, you know, the people that, that do participate in in the forums, um, in the tools, while they're remain, while they are retaining their anonymity, you said you know it does come with a certain risk, and it's incredible approach is to I think what you're what you're doing is a very people centric and story 
personal story centric approach versus like you said political approach which could get midi's youth into a lot of trouble is that correct yeah absolutely yeah. because that's what we were doing in the first years and we we faced a lot of backlash and we thought okay well if we are all behind bars that might send a message but who is actually going to involve the rest of the people um we didn't want to stop there you know and, and the other thing is safety for our families too I mean, it's not just our lives at stake, but sometimes they come after your own family. So um, we, you know, we had to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, well, safety is an issue for us, for the team members, and also for the participating um, communities um, that, that take part in this. And um, we just decided to focus on information advocacy and just focusing on allowing people to share information and as widely as possible, and sometimes globally. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it did came at the very beginning with a lot of risks that made us go back and rethink. And we, ha the more creative you are, sometimes, you know, you can um, bypass the censorship in different ways and still make the message. For example, whether it's through music or a video or an interactive tool that you build or, or any kind of resource that you share, as opposed to coming in outright anti-government campaign, there are other ways much more... Uh, underground and much more, um, you know, um, l less obvious ways to, to tackle these issues and reach as many people as possible to, to make an impact and to also question existing perceptions of, you know, race and uh, social class and all kinds of issues that are also underlining a lot of the corruption that happens in the Middle East. It's not just government level, but it's also very social, especially here in the Gulf. Sure. And you mentioned originally when you had, when, when Mideast youth had a little bit more of a politically focused approach, you, you did receive some backlash. What kind of backlash did that entail? If you could give us some examples. I mean, you get a lot of um, threats um, for, for your family. I had a lot of family members who received backlash and came and told me, you really need to reconsider what you're doing because it's not just you. And maybe you chose this life, but we didn't. And even though we may support you, but it's behind closed doors. I mean, we, we cannot go these, I mean, my, you know, it's, it's really difficult for you to do all of this and have a family and, and not be anonymous in doing this. I mean, for example, now, whenever I speak, I do not allow photography and I do not allow videos. And um, I, you will not find photos of me on the Internet. And the reason for that is that I sort of had to wipe out that previous identity of the overly, you know, rebellious, very in your face. I was in, you know, um, just much more outspoken and very naive ways because I was also younger. I was inexperienced. I had not really, um, you know, I have a lot of really prominent friends, um, activists, you know, that really talked me into being more cautious. Um, they said, we were like you when we were younger and look where we are now. And it's, it's not easy. You see what their families go through. You see what they go through. And they would just say that you have to really be cautious. And so I am overly paranoid, overly cautious. And I think it's, it pays off to be that way. Because also, when you have that level of slight anonymity, because it's not complete anonymity. Of course, my, my name is shared. Of course, they already know my association, my affiliation with Mini Youth. It's, not, it's nothing new. But once you're at least physically anonymous um, online, you could really achieve a lot more controversial things. For example, 
doing the LGBT platform would have been an issue if I was an overly outspoken, very visible individual. Um, I think I still may have gotten away with it, but not in such a way that I'm doing now. And it allows me to just be more creative in my thinking and, and invite more people um, in, you know, in my work, um, because otherwise sometimes you don't get the right network because people are scared of the association with you. So you cannot really alienate people. You have to really try really hard to stay safe so that your message gets amplified and uh, multiplied. And so that you can also help other people. If, for example, you won't find um, you, you won't find a personal blog by me. Um, we, you know, we are very community oriented in the sense that we don't focus on individuals. It's all about the cause. None of the websites we have have one voice in it. It's either a group effort, or it's a platform that is for musicians or LGBTs, or it's a discussion tool. It's meant to be very community oriented, and that also plays a part in safety too. Of course, me being the administrator of them all puts me in risk because if someone does something, I would be the one held accountable for that. But I would much rather do that than have them do it and be held accountable for their own actions. Um, but it takes a lot of, you know, a, a lot of lessons learned, I would say, because it wasn't always, we didn't always have these answers when we were starting out. And I think we're just now learning about how to deal with all of this stuff that is happening, whether it's censorship and the increasing amount of surveillance and how we can turn it into something that could be beneficial for us. Right, right. And in a lot of ways, the, the work is is unprecedented just because, you know, like we said before, the not only the bravery that it takes to, to challenge traditional social roles in the region and social constructs, it's a matter of trial and error in a lot of ways. Like you, you know, you said originally, the political approach didn't work and you know it's your family ended up being in danger so you have to go back to the drawing board uh you have to persevere and it's just this sort of you know along the way with every decision that you make it seems that there could be you know elevated risk obviously but there's always more reward it seems you know at the end when you do take those risks definitely so, yeah definitely i mean when in the beginning i did consider just leaving everything behind and approaching a normal life because I was also concerned for my family. But I realized that there is a lot to be done. And because of the internet, it allowed us to be very, very creative in how we approach these topics. It didn't have to be this or that. We could, we could dress our message with anything that we want. And I think that was also very important for us. And um, I would advise others to sort of, when they're in the similar position as opposed to giving up, and leaving these things behind or having to do things very underground and not being heard of, it's still possible to be outspoken in ways that are um, a little bit more disguised. And you could disguise music, for example. Music is easier to sort of get away with, even though there's a lot of rappers and um, musicians being arrested. Um, it's still lower in number than journalists and hardcore activists who sort of go there and are in the front line of all these human rights issues. But at the same time, the message really could reach the same amount of people, just like the Kurdish hip hop reached to me and won me over. The same could be done for other causes that use music. And if you're just saying that, well, look, it's just music, you can really get away with a lot. That's exactly why on Midi's tunes, you won't see just mid political uh, focus. But there's also some more pop, you know, other t t uh, mainstream type music so that you sort of hide the message somewhere in between and still 
overwhelmingly you invite the bands who do actually have a socially um, a social religious uh, uh, political message to share through their through their music in various languages uh, Kurdish uh, Farsi uh, Arabic Turkish so um, I think that's also an important thing is is being involved in other people's struggles as much as we are on our you know here um, having Arabs take part more in Kurdish issues, having Kurds do more for Palestinian issues, like all of these kinds of things I think really could be happening if you embrace the creative side of how you can brand these issues. Um, so I, I think it just depends on the skill set of how in the end we um, communicate this to the public. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate Under 30 interview with Director of Special Projects Anne Ulizio and Ezra Al-Shafei, founder and director of the Mideast Youth Network. You know, the whole, the whole goal is to give voice to people who, who otherwise don't have a way to tap into a community resource, tap into other people who are experiencing the same thing. So it sort of creates this sense that it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what your name is. It doesn't matter what country in the Middle East or in North Africa you come from, which community you come from, um, which sect of Islam you identify with. It's just a matter that it's a personal story. And there are other people out there that, you know, that are sharing the struggle and that, you know, finding, finding empowerment through that sense of community is it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And, and for us also, the message is that, you know, we don't tell people, well, you have to agree with everyone to get along with them. We also really, the, the whole point of Midis Youth is to also be very fierce, but still respectful. So the whole idea was to also invite people who had different opinions from others. And that's the only way that they would learn. Otherwise, you'd kind of be preaching to the choir, inviting people who already think like you and just speaking amongst each other. We wanted to invite people who think very differently from us and invite them to the conversation and have them take part in this evolving conversation and, and, and turning it into something that we didn't have before, which is just sort of a shared environment where people could communicate with each other. Um, and sometimes, you know, most of the time, it's a very respe a respectful discourse where there's just a lot to be learned. There's often many examples of people just misunderstanding what another cause stood for what a faith stood for. We saw this with a lot of Muslims who had um, taken issue with the Baha'i faith, calling it blasphemy and all kinds of things, even though they themselves claim to be human rights activists. And we sort of find ways to turn that discussion into something a lot better. Um, and it, at the same time, it was also questioning a lot of um, misconceptions about um, you know, the Kurdish identity and whether or not there's a 
you know, a Kurdish state should be recognized and just all kinds of issues that you hear of, but can't really engage with an actual Kurd or, or engage with an actual Baha'i or, or a Baha'i, for example, engaging with a Muslim very openly um, in a place like Egypt, you know, or in a place like Iran. So we really wanted to have a platform where, you know, we, we, we enable these kinds of discussions, controversial or not. I mean, I'll be honest with you, we do have a lot of, uh, you know, st- um, sometimes homophobic authors or commentators who come on, uh, who come on board and say, oh, you know, I believe in political rights and all of that, but I don't believe, you know, that this is normal and this should be punished and it's against the faith or it's against my personal beliefs. Um, And those are perceptions that we hope to change or influence. We're we're not here to say that we also have all the answers. I mean, when I started Medisuit, I was completely ignorant. I didn't know many things. And I still am in many ways, to be frank, you know. And and I I think it's just... the willingness to learn is very important and being open to learning and being open to differences and people. And, um, I think that's where the power is. And to be, um, to be honest also, I think it's what the governments are scared of because that kind of unity cannot be, uh, defeated. And when people do want change and they're in one hand and they want something regardless of their uh, differences, um, it could happen, and it could happen in the right way. I mean, so far the changes that we've seen here is a very well-funded political or religious party that comes on board and hijacks the movements. Um, but with better organization, with better social awareness, with better tolerance, with better um, transparency, uh, with better, you know, just openness to understanding um, and, and sort of educating ourselves moving forward, we can really achieve a lot. And I think it could be overwhelmingly positive the results of that, even if it doesn't re- result in things like regime change or some of the big revolutionary ideas, this has changed from a very underground, very grassroots level. And I think that's the most powerful change that you can have. And it's the kind of change that also takes the longest. I mean, I don't believe in overnight successes. It's just very skeptical. You know, I mean, even if it's if it seems positive and, and noble and all of that, something tends to happen that just, you know, flips the coin another way with ease. Um, and I think part of that is the fact that people don't sometimes have the right access to the right information. And we need to populate that. We need to populate the internet with the better ideas and with ideas that people deserve to hear versus the propaganda. And to me, it's a war. It's a war of who has the more resources, who has the more people, who is more creative. And that's the war that we are seeking to fight. Wow. And it really is, like you said, the most powerful change is small scale. I, I completely agree with you. It's you know, you see regime changes in countries across the world without, you know, sometimes without any sort of social change. And so, you know, regime changes and, and uh, changes in political uh, political power don't nece- don't necessitate a, a recognition of, of social struggles of the of the population. So, you know, like you said, creating a dialogue for for things that are otherwise overlooked or like you said, the governments may be afraid of sort of opening up the the conversations to these kinds of issues. It's unprecedented in a lot of ways. Um, and I wanted to actually circle back to the AHWA initiative specifically, um, as homosexuality is actually is outlawed in a number of countries in the region. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this project specifically? And uh, it's it's you're rena- retaining again a name. 
anonymity for these for these people but how does how does the the site itself function is it it's i understand it's more of a forum it's a discussion board can you tell us a little bit about it yeah so in the um I, I founded this uh, site. Um, I have a co-founder in Egypt as well. Uh, his name is Ahmed Zaydan. And basically, we were just sort of thinking about how we could approach this issue because more and more um, LGBT members of our community felt that this was the missing um, part of all our campaigns. I mean, they say, yes, you would, you know, you have all these campaigns for ethnic and religious minorities and in general, um, tackling all kinds of things. And Already we were having a podcast with uh, members of the LGBT community here, but they felt that much more could be done. And so we started talking to a lot of our LGBT friends and, and being a part of this, um, of, of their discussions, we asked, what is there that is needed? And um, many people said, we just want a place where we can share our thoughts without being judged or discriminated against, and to, to know that there's other people like us. And it wouldn't be the same as, for example, starting a Facebook group or another um, somewhere elsewhere. We wanted to create something that was created from scratch with this particular community and region in mind. So we created ahua.org, and the whole platform is supposed to be sharing, uh, you know, exchanging and sharing personal stories and helping um, provide advice and experiences to others so that you could also give um, hope or answers to people who are looking for them. Um, there's a lot of people who have questions about gender identity, sexual orientation. Um, there's a lot of even heterosexual people who had questions and said, you know, well, my brother just came out to me. I'm not sure how to take it. Um, people wanting to come out. Is it a good idea to your family? Who has done it? Has it been successful? Should I not do it? Um, all kinds of these types of things, we felt that there wasn't a shared space online where people can go and have these discussions in a way that was also very interactive as well. So the site only allows you to share text and you are associated with um, an avatar, an avatar that you can basically select. And um, so every avatar is also associated with a heart, a different colored heart. So for example, if your heart is green, that means you're more or less trustworthy because you've been a member of the community for some time and you've gained a lot of points by sharing helpful comments. And every time you share something that other people find helpful, they click a button that says this is helpful and the other person gains a point. Um, so, and if your avatar or if your, uh, the heart on your avatar is red or gray, that means this person is relatively new, hasn't really been a part of that many discussions. Please be cautious about asking them any specific questions, you know, things like that. Um, so still, we don't encourage people to share any kinds of personal data. So before taking any action, either, um, you know, uh, sending a private message to someone or sending a chat uh, message to someone, you always have the warning that you will promise not to either share their information or your information. And we have a group of moderators that check in more or less on an hourly basis to make sure that things like this don't happen. And um, the chat room, for example, um, new members don't have access to it. You only have access to it when you've gained um, 100 points. And you can only create a chat room if you've had more than 500 points. That means you have you know, been a part of several dozen topics and other people should have found your, um, you know, uh, 
comments to be very helpful as opposed to just leaving any kinds of uh, uh, comments and gaining points that way. So um, the, the reason we did that also is because we didn't want trolls. And trolls is something you find everywhere online. Um, just people who come and um, mock other people or they would just share um, inappropriate information or whatever it may be. We wanted to be sure that people felt at home, that people sort of looked at each other as sort of a, an anonymous family um, where you can go and to someplace like this and find answers. And we get lots of testimonials from users who say that the site has really helped them come to terms with their identity and to understand what they've been a part of and to know that this is normal and all kinds of things. Um, so we, we, we felt very lucky to have been a part of something like this and we're really looking to expand. For example, we just launched in Bulgaria a couple of months ago and the reason for that is that we had a Bulgarian LGBT organization come to us and say this could be very useful for our community because there's also um, a lot of uh, homophobic sentiment uh, in, in Bulgaria, particularly from like very religious um, individuals and there's a lot of cyberbullying online against homosexuals, especially teens, um, or at school, or people who had legal questions about, for example, being fired because they were gay and their employer doesn't like that, for example. So uh, we wanted to even assist them in, in building that because um, the, the the platform was already built, and the only thing we had to do was replicate it for their community. So. Um, it's uh, called kilera.org, which basically um, means closet in Bulgarian. And um, we hope, you know, to work with as many LGBT organizations as in, in the world as possible, um, because obviously it's not just an Arab issue, but you see lots of, um, you know, lots of communities around the world facing, uh, facing this, whether it's LGBT or whether it's even uh, about different topics like child bullying and things like that. We've been approached, for example, even from some U.S. organizations who thought, well, how can we use this for child bullying, you know, and how to peers supporting each other and being anonymous about it because no one is proud and no one wants to, other people to know that they're being bullied at school and how people could share experiences to help uh, each other get over things like that. So, I mean, we're looking at all, all the time building tools that could mean something for communities around the world, not just for us. And I think that's really a powerful thing to do as well, because often people look at the Middle East and the Arab world as people who consume services that are being built elsewhere. But we ourselves are also building tools and conceptualizing tools that could be used around the world. Hmm. Wow. And you had mentioned before that the goal isn't necessarily, you know, it's not regime change. It's not a revolution. Um, it's, again, to just start a dialogue and to provide support. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, the Arab Spring has been, you know, it's just been, it's set, set a precedent in so many ways. And I'm guessing in a way it set a, may have set a stigma in terms of internet use as, you know, as a way to disseminate information that would otherwise not be shared. Um, how, how do you, what's your take on that whole, um, on the use of, you know, digital media to, to inspire a revolution versus just, just starting a dialogue? Um, how is that reconciled with the work that you do? I think for me, um, you know, these internet tools in the end are, are just tools. Um, you can use them for positive and you can use them for negative. And a lot of people also use them for negative things. Governments use them. Governments who, um, ministers, uh, politicians, sometimes PR firms working on behalf of governments 
Um, so it's not as if the tools themselves and just having access to the tools is what creates the revolutions. Um, a lot of people, for example, in the very early days were calling what happened in Egypt a Twitter revolution. But I would sometimes ask, Do you, did you call it a shoe revolution just because everyone is also wearing shoes, you know? It's just a matter of what people are using and um, how are you using it and also who has access to it. I mean, sometimes a call on the Internet can go very far, but the people on the ground may not necessarily have access to the Internet, um, but they heard it somehow word through word of mouth. Um, and that's also something important to take into uh, consideration, that everything that we do online has to take some kind of effect offline as well um, and has to translate into something offline, one way or the other, even if it's just happening in the mindsets of people and the person who is reading about your campaign goes and tells a colleague or a family member, that to me is very helpful as well and just sort of ties back into the grassroots message that I was telling you earlier. Um, it, yes, definitely, we also had an issue when the governments would... Uh, censorship has skyrocketed everywhere after the Arab Spring, just more people, um, more governments uh, being aware that the internet is obviously, obviously incredibly influential and also transmitting data. For example, being banned entry to Bahrain or, any, or Libya or Algeria when, when the um, protests or revolts were happening, um, journalists who did not have the visas required to enter the country. So it banned international medias from witnessing or taking part in documenting these issues. What ended up happening is people turned to YouTube and turned to, um, you know, their uh, use stream to stream some of the protests and, and just using many other tools and creative methods of sharing what was going on through either pictures, videos, um, live interviews, live streaming. For example, lots of live streaming sites are now completely censored in Bahrain. Um, so that, that's the other thing is um, before 2010, 2011, censorship did occur. But now there are entire departments in many governments that are just, uh, whose only job is to look online for people who could be uh, stirring issues and to punish them by any means possible. So this is also something that we have really struggled with. Um, our own websites face censorship. For example, we were also, uh, Crowd Voice was also censored briefly in Yemen until the president was overthrown. And to this day, for the third year in a row, we are censored in Bahrain. Um, and I think, you know, if I had done this maybe six years ago, maybe we wouldn't be censored. But um, I think today the influence is, is just there's no questions about it. It's very clear. And, um, you know, it's just much more defined what the internet can mean to social movements and to organizing social movements and amplifying and disseminating information to uh, news outlets around the world who don't have access to these things. I mean, you see this prominently taking place in Syria as well. The majority of all CNN, BBC, Reuters videos are always streamed from YouTube, uh, um, Dailymotion, and just other video providers out there. Um, LiveLeak. Um, so you see the role of the internet being very prominent because here you have government officials denying that there's airstrikes, denying that there are group murders and tortures and, or mass graves, and then people are documenting it and sharing it with the world. And that's something, of course, that would threaten them. Absolutely. So it's, it's almost the technology is 
complementing in a way the the fact that that human human creativity and and empathy for others really finds a way to to create that dialogue regardless of the constraints you know like you said it's a more defined set of limits and what you can and cannot do but when you go back to the drawing board when when you and your team go back to the drawing board after another trial and something that may not have turned out the way that you wanted to you you find a way to make it work it's uh it's really just again a testament to that to that creative sense of humans and the the empathy the empathy that we feel for each other so exactly and it's very easy unfortunately to take advantage of that though as well by sharing propaganda and by doing the exact opposite to win people over to different parties or causes or or political beliefs and ideologies so we have to be also extremely cautious because like i said um we're fighting a war not just with government or you know oppressive authorities uh we're, we're fighting really a global battle um, when it comes to misinformation and propaganda and trying to win people over for very personal or economic interests. And it's not just related to what's happening in the region, um, but for example, you even see the U.S. State Department meddling in very, very dangerous areas when it comes to this type of stuff. You know, they would fund um, advocacy campaigns in the region, not because they support them, but so that they can gain intelligence on them. Um, so, I mean, these are all kinds of things that we have to be extremely aware of. Um, we distance ourselves from, for example, any organization that works with the State Department for that reason. Just like we distance ourselves from any organization working with any regional authorities, which there are increasingly more and more nonprofits, or, or as they call them, gongos, government-organized uh, nonprofit uh, organizations. And, you know, just because they're nonprofit doesn't make them any less corrupt um, the sources of funding, money is not always money when it comes to this, you know, what we're dealing with. And that's actually why Medis Youth has also really suffered. Um, being, you know, even in the introduction, you may have um, mentioned the recognition from Fast Company and Forbes and Echo and Green and Ted and all of these. Um, but that doesn't necessarily translate to, for example, funding. Um uh, and we've had a, a really difficult time getting funding, also because a lot of billionaire philanthropists have a problem with the Gulf because they are very invested here. They help manage the wealth of a lot of Gulf royalty. So they would not, you know, there, was, there would be a lot of, it's like a double-edged sword. And um, you can't accept money from them because they're tied to these regimes and you can't obviously accept money from the regimes. So we've also had to be creative in not just creating these tools, but how to make revenue from the tools that we had already built. For example, we had a sports company approach us to repurpose a hoa, but for sports. So we they paid us to build something for that, and then we used the money to fund um, a hoa's growth. And we built a chat feature, and we launched a mobile um, compatible uh, browse you know feature, and. Um, we, we had to do that with money that we generated ourselves, and it was not easy, and it was very difficult, um, because at the same time, you're running these campaigns and initiatives, and you're running like a side business on the side where you have paying clients paying you to also um, consult on their web development and activities, and, and it's, a, it's, it's revenue, but you know, it sort of distracts you from the mission as well, so it's, it's really difficult. Um, uh, it's it's you know, a really big challenge to also keep things like this up because um, on MIDI Tunes now we have over 6,000 tracks and two mobile apps and um, 
tons of bands that are joining us on a daily basis. And on Crowd Voice, we host um, more than 20 gigabytes worth of images. And I mean, all of these things are things that you have to back up on a daily basis and hosting costs are definitely in the thousands on a monthly basis. And these things, I mean, as creative as they are to kind of, uh, you know, interact with and produce, um, unfortunately, the costs are not... Um, are not really easy to, to sort of deal with. But I think on a very string budget, we've been, you know, we've achieved a lot more than um, what we initially sought out to do. Um, and and I, I owe completely all of that to my team, many of whom started in their first years being completely unpaid and just volunteering their time and efforts to help me make this happen because they believed in it and they saw the value in it. And I mean, I owe them so much for that because they left the opportunity to have a paying job and these are brilliant people um, that could have a job anywhere, but they stuck around despite not having money because they believe that these tools really work. And if they didn't, um, it would have been a lot a lot more difficult to uh, you know build these, considering no you know no sufficient budget and uh, increasingly uh, an increasing overhead basically for hosting and all kinds of um, things that sort of come with running and building web and mobile applications. Sure, sure. So like you said, it's like a double-edged sword, you know, as, as interest grows, you know, even into other regions of the world, like you said, Bulgaria, you know, you're starting a program there. So as, as the interest grows, the overhead becomes more, so funding becomes more difficult. So, you know, what's next for the future for you in terms of, will you be looking to expand into other regions more to possibly, you know, open up, I guess, to open up the possibility of more funding in other areas or are you looking to sort of bolster what you have now and look for funding in the region before you start expanding a little bit more? I mean, we've already started expanding a little bit more. We're expanding a lot more, you know, uh, in Mexico, for example, because there we, we received the highest number of traffic for crowd voice from Mexico because of the electoral fraud uh, that took place um, and all the protests that were ongoing for many months and just the, the many um, social justice movements that take place there and civil society organizations. And we're also looking to expand in India because the presence of social movements is also increasing and, and uh, uh, it, we just see so much in common that we could help each other out. So we're definitely looking beyond the region. In terms of you know certain projects started here, but we're looking to expand in other areas while keeping the base in the Middle East. Um, Middle East students, for example, we've talked about the possibility of having a version of Middle East students in Latin America. Um, but for you know financial reasons, we we just started sticking with what we have now. Um, but we are building a really revamped, uh, lots of introducing lots of new features for MIDI students, um, and most of that is self-funded. So we're just looking to sort of expand and expand and see where that takes us because we see a lot of potential for potential, you know, collaboration with um, um, other nonprofits that could uh, sort of just look at music as a as a means for freedom of expression and finally, you know providing more funding to that instead of just focusing on things like workshops and whatnot, which work but are not that sustainable in the end. Um, there's just a crazy amount of money that is funneled in this region, but unfortunately I think a lot of it is sort of misdirected and mismanaged as well. Um, so we've been steering clear of a lot of the you know chaos that takes place financially. Um, and sort of being small 
is a very important way for us to be, you know, very uh, close to our vision and our mission and our values. We want to keep our team small, but our tools, we want to expand them to as many regions as possible. So, um, for example, the Bulgarian LGBT, we just provide the technology and the hosting and that tech support, but they do everything on their own because they understand the issue and we don't, you know, so we don't want to interfere with what they think is best for the product. We just deliver knowing that they have, um, you know, the best interest for expanding that product in mind. Um, the same thing for Crad Voice. Right now we're building a tool called mycradvoice.org, which was, is going to be a very personal, uh, customizable, efficient way to organize, curate, and disseminate a wide range of data about your topic. So instead of doing it on cradvoice.org, um, you can do it on your own personal page and sort of invite other people to help you uh, curate that information, which could be very helpful for not small nonprofit organizations with a very small team that want to curate um, and organize their archives and data in one visual interface. And uh, so that's really what we're focused on right now. I'm, I'm kind of um, focused also on doing a little bit of fundraising, but luck in that department is not, you know, it's not happening. It's also difficult because I'm based in Bahrain. So it's, the money is all in Europe and the U.S. and, um, you know, abroad. And I don't really have access to the um, right networks for that. Because even though I'm part of Equine Green and TED and all of this, it doesn't change where I am and what I do. And what I do is difficult for people to find. Um, it's, it's, you know, people are doing more and more um, just... I guess different things than we are and especially when you have such a specific focus like Arab LGBT or Kurdish rights or migrant rights it's, it's difficult to find the right departments to kind of pitch for it um, and it's definitely really difficult to find overhead costs because no organization is gonna share the vision for music minority rights ethnic minorities freedom of speech through you know whatever it it, it we just do really different things, and um, but I'm trying to be as optimistic as hopeful and ho as hopeful as possible. And I'm very lucky to work with a team that really believes in our mission. Um, but yeah, we hope to not wind down any of our activities due to uh, funding issues because also crowdfunding is really difficult here because of our target audience. Um, you know, a lot of people in the Middle East either don't, especially people that we're uh, targeting or, or working with either don't have the access to the capital or don't have access to credit cards or um, don't typically fund the things that we work on. So it's been increasingly difficult for us to run this, but we believe in it. We think it's making a really big difference and we won't really stop kicking ass. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Despite, despite all the obstacles, you know, despite the, the state censorship that's just inherent in the, in the, the system of, of information dissemination in the region, despite the the problems with funding, you you're still doing incredible work, and you're giving voice to people that would otherwise have not have no opportunity to do so. So it's it's really inspiring, and we we do hope you keep on kicking ass, as you said. <laughs> um, I we're coming close to the end of our time here. I I just wanted to ask you one more quick question. Um, I, you know, I was looking looking up a little bit of information about the role of the uh, essentially women's rights in Bahraini society and a very paramount change actually happened within your lifetime. Um, in 2002, under the rule of King Hamad, the, um, 
women were incorporated into the electorate and were given the ability to run for government positions. Um, can you tell us how, you know, how being a woman has, if, if at all, if it's affected the work that you're doing or the prospects for the future in any way? Um, for me, um, it has never really been a big issue. Um, it, it became a big issue sometimes when I would even fundraise and people saw that I was young and a woman in a place like this. They just assumed that I was going to fail by default because I was not going to be able to overcome the challenges that come with it. But um, a lot of my friends here are business and social entrepreneurs who are women. And we sort of grew up in this generation of women who are very strong and fought for what they want. Um, I would not say that women, I mean, there's still a lot of things to fight for. Um, you know, uh, whether it's in family law and, and just sort of, there's still a lot to improve. Um, but definitely uh, our situation is, is better than some of the uh, neighboring countries. But um, it still comes with a lot of barriers. Um, just doing any kind of uh, political or social work. And I think it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, you're still going to be punished sort of equally in that way. So we, and, and many, and in fact, Midis Youth is run entirely by women, with the exception of one individual. So, um, and we had been last year entirely women, 100%, even our board are all women. And I didn't choose that. I, I trust me when I say it happened more or less by accident. <laughs> it just, it just so happens that um, in this field, uh, I just felt that the, the people who were doing the most and, and innovating the most, um, you know, happened to be women. Um, my, my best friend is a Syrian tech entrepreneur who I, I, has done amazing work and has served as the CTO for several Middle Eastern startups. And she's also our technical advisor. And um, she also agrees that, you know, she never really saw gender as a hindrance or as a way to sort of succeed. For us, I think also the best way to fight for women's rights is to succeed as a woman, um, regardless of whatever challenges that come your way. Um, we just wanted to make a mark and not just by saying, look at us, we're women and therefore we're only going to focus on women's rights. We're doing things beneficial for all of society. And uh, of course, sometimes we have some biases for, you know, like we would find uh, women musicians on MIDI students and sometimes give them a little bit more coverage, but also to encourage more women to take part in under the underground music scene, because for some time, some women felt that they were not invited. Um, so, you know, to, to, play an active role in that and to be received um, with respect as opposed to with condemnation. So we just wanted to see, succeed as women and to empower um, other men and women and um, to achieve things um, that we set out to do regardless of our gender. I think it shouldn't stand in the, in the way. Just like a lot of members of the LGBT community that would say it doesn't matter my sexual orientation, I still want to succeed as a businessman or as a teacher or so on and so forth. Um, so, so yeah, but I feel kind of lucky also. Um, I grew up in this age where I grew amongst many women fighters and many women have lost their, um, it, to be honest, a generation of fighters, men and women, who have lost their lives fighting for greater freedoms and uh, greater hope. And, and these are our heroes. And just because we're more visible doesn't mean that it's a new phenomenon. I mean, people have been fighting human rights since before we became an independent country. So that's something we have to honor. And, uh, you know, a lot of the work that we do sort of just pays tribute to that. And we don't think we're, 
we're doing a lot of new things with new tools, but a lot of the ideas are actually being recycled. And um, for good or for worse, sometimes it's a really learning process. And for that reason, we also developed an application, by the way, as a last thing that um, I will add here, but we also run a, a web application and uh, iPad application called Making of a Century, which is a very interactive way for you to look through the social uh, movements in the past 100 years, either good or bad, and leaders, historical leaders that we could learn from in the past 100 years who might be reflecting some of what we're going through today. And the whole point of that is to reflect on our history, on what happened, how we can learn, and how we can implement better social strategies for greater change. Wow. Esra, you truly have come so far, and Middle East Youth is responsible for such such important initiatives in our world today. So we have to thank you for, for all of the inspiring work that you're doing today. Uh, the best way to reach Esra and to support Mideast Youth is through mideastyouth.com. And you can click above this podcast for webpage links for further details. Esra, thank you so much again for joining us today. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Best of luck in the future. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.